Hello and welcome to this episode of the Desert Tiger Podcast. I am your host here on the show. My name is Colton G and welcome to the DTP. Today my guest is Tom Stevens, known as the drummer and co-manager of the Jeff Healy Band and recent author of Best Seat in the House. Before we get to my guest today, Mr. Tom Stevens, I want to go ahead and thank all of you who have gone ahead and checked out last week's episode, which featured D.O. Gibson as we spoke about his upcoming album, Second Home. I had a great time talking to D.O. about the album as well as his Stay Driven initiative that he was touring through BC in support of talking to students. Of course, Second Home drops next Friday, that being April 26th of 2019. If you go ahead and pre-order the album, you're going to go ahead and get an early download of the track Made It From The Six. And of course, there are a ton of tracks from this album already available for streaming on all services. So go ahead and support the man D.O., He's doing amazing things with his music, a great vision, a great message. So if you didn't get to listen to that episode, maybe you want to go ahead and check it out or any of the other great episodes in our backlog. Tom Stevens is the author of the new novel, Best Seat in the House, which is an inside look into Tom's time as both drummer and co-manager of the Jeff Healy Band. Tom hopes that Best Seat in the House will begin to spark the process of getting the late, great Jeff Healy into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by reviving many of the stories and experiences that they shared together. From meeting each other into Toronto, to being nominated for a couple of Grammy Awards, winning a few Junos, and being featured in Roadhouse. I mean, that's a pretty classic film that I'm pretty sure almost all of you have seen. Tom brings fans through many of the group's highs, as well as many of their lows, as Tom refuses to hold back even on himself noting his own actions as one of the dividing wedges in their relationship. Today, Tom Stevens joins me on the DTP to discuss his new autobiography, Best Seat in the House. We're also going to discuss some of the things that Tom has learned about his late great friend, Jeff Healy, since publishing the novel, We're also going to discuss some of the stories about Jeff that the novel entails, some of the hilarious antics that could only come from a personality such as Mr. Jeff Healy. It's a great conversation. It's very insightful. And like I said, Tom holds back on nobody, including himself. So I hope that you guys are ready for a inside look into what life is like having the best seat in the house in one of the world's most prominent blues rocks acts. This is my interview with Tom Stevens. How did I 
right, we are here with Tom Stevens, co-manager and drummer of the Jeff Healy Band and recent author of the book, Best Seat in the House, My Life in the Jeff Healy Band. How are you today, Tom? I am great. I am sitting in Toronto watching it snow, but it's uh, it's otherwise everything is great. <laughs> snow can be lovely as long as you're watching it, not having to do much else in it. And that's why I came back today because I was doing interviews all morning and decided I'm, I'm supposed to go out tonight, but I'm going to hibernate. <laughs> I was at a show last night. It was uh, tribute some original band from from David Bowie. But the highlight, I'm just throwing this out there for what it's worth, just, uh, you know, you really kind of sometimes miss being on a stage, but this probably was one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. Uh, Charlie Sexton was on, the original keyboard player. It was just fantastic. Uh, Sass Jordan representing Canada. But the cool thing, and I'll probably need your help, the Canadian, our Canadian astronaut, who was the first guy in space to play a guitar and sang, um, oh my gosh, Major Tong. Uh, I just can't think of his name now. Uh, anyway, he came up and played Major Tongue, and it was just amazing. So I'm excited. I got my picture with him. I didn't even care about all these other great musicians. He was the guy. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool moment for that to come together. Really cool. Plus, he's Canadian, and I didn't know the backstory. I, I was talking to the key, the original keyboard player with the band, and this astronaut and David Bowie became really fast friends when he performed that song, and that's why he was, you know, uh, they were singing it. So it was very touching at the same time. Anyway, sorry, I, I digress. Pardon me. No worries. I had no idea about that. So thank you for sharing that information with me. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's start out at the beginning. Where does your musical journey begin, and when did you meet? The legendary Jeff Healy. I guess it's a typical drummer story in the sense of, you know, getting kicked out of class for beating on desk and whatnot and wrecking your mother's pots and pans. I didn't get my first kit till I was about 12 or 13. But having said that, my musical journey was really sitting in the garage and playing at headphones and kind of jamming. It wasn't really till for various reasons I ended up moving from the East Coast to Toronto to finish uh, or to do a master's in urban planning. I remember my dad saying uh, I had a U-Haul trailer and it was a toss-up between a wicker couch and my old set of drums and he he just sort of offhandedly said you know take the drums I have a feeling you might need them. When I came to Toronto um, I started just jamming around town and all of a sudden I got an offer to be in a band with a guy called Buzz Upshaw. I was just a jam guy. I didn't really, you know, I, I got kicked off of way more stages than I, than I got to stay on when I first started. Jeff really liked this guy called Buzz Upshaw. And Jeff was probably 17 around then, underage, of course, but we used to play this uh, hamburger joint on Queen Street, Toronto, called Chicago's. And Jeff used to come and see us almost weekly for a few weeks sat in a couple times and then one day said look I'd love for you to come down to uh, Grossman's Tavern which is kind of a little dive on Spadina where a lot of bands have come out of the Toronto scene over the years it's been there I think since uh, like 1940s it's been you know it's a real landmark short story we jammed and uh, I'd never seen I jammed with him a bit but I hadn't realized 
you know, the extent to Jeff's uh, uh, disability in a sense, um, this is a little embarrassing, but he leapt out of the chair, and that's the real Jeff. And he just played these incredible notes, hops all over the place, knocks chairs over, people over, drinks over, mm. comes back to his chair, sits down. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, don't drink and drive. I don't. I know I don't. Gets up and goes to the back of the stage where, where the bands would kind of hang out. I was gobsmacked, blown away, went back, sat down with him, and he said, listen, I, you know, I really enjoyed that. I'd like to start a band. And I'm like, what do you mean? You, you don't have a band? I just made that assumption that, you know, a guy that good is already up and running. And uh, I said, look, you know, I, I just finished a master's degree, and, you know, I have a serious kind of outlook in life where I'm trying to go here. And, you know, I, I love to do it, but, you know, you got to watch your drinking. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus, Jeff, you're knocking over the whole place. <laughs> and he's like, uh, Tom, I'm blind. <laughs> so it, it was it was a bit of a strange start, but uh, there you go. Uh, off we went. Oh, wow. Because everyone thinks that, everyone talks that Jeff's signature style was his sitting on his lap and his playing. And for him to have already be jumping around the room at the age of 17 and knocking everything over just goes to stand to not only his ability, but his personality. Uh, that's a, that's an excellent, excellent observation because, you know, Jeff was a showman. One of the interesting things, he didn't use a strap. So when he would jump up that way, you know, you have a six foot two guy, probably 220 pounds, bouncing around a room. And he was holding that guitar literally against his thigh while he's jumping all over the place and never missing a note. And in fact, I would argue some of his best leads was when he was jumping around. It was pretty, pretty interesting. That's incredible because most people who do have full vision can't play without a strap. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't want to go there, but I've seen it, and you're absolutely right. <laughs> oh, I, I've seen it numerous times in music, with musicians I have jammed with and some that I haven't. So, Oh, you're a guitar player? Uh, mostly bass, but I'll play a little bit of guitar oh, okay. here and there too, yeah. Cool, okay. Mm -hmm. I know that I, as a bassist, that thing is a little bit too awkward and heavy for me to do that, so I know that personally, I'm calling out myself when I say that. Well, you know, honesty is not a bad policy. <laughs> Definitely not a bad apology at all. So, once you guys decide to start a band... The Canadian blues scene, I'm guessing, in the late 80s probably wasn't exactly very prominent or strong. So what did it take for you guys to get noticed? Because Jeff being like extremely talented is one thing, but they always say that part of it is luck and part of it is timing. Where did you guys get noticed? What did you guys have to do initially to get signed? Well, in my own world where I grew up, um, you know, I go into this in the book somewhat because I try and give all our backgrounds because, you know, we, we were an odd trio to sort of end up together. We all had fairly interesting and diverse backgrounds and probably were unlikely candidates to be, I, I don't want to use the word rock stars, but we, we were more nerds than rock star type guys. Uh, you know, Jeff loved his jazz. I'm an urban planner. Uh, Joe was probably more of the professional musician. But, you know, we're, we're quirky guys. But 
I myself had grown up on the East Coast, and the blues was really nothing new to me. Uh, the, the Maritimes were steeped in the blues uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we were close to the U.S. border, so we get a lot of the radio stations in those days that you could pick up on. And also a lot of the uh, armed forces guys, the U.S. armed forces, uh, uh, particularly uh, African-Americans, would come up to my little town because we, we had a, a large black population. And Maine, where they were based, was a pretty white bread kind of place. So if they wanted to, you know, hang out, and uh, it was still the days where, you know, there was still racism and black and white didn't really intermingle on the American side. So they'd come up to our part of the world. So it was a great education for us as kids because we got to see all these great musicians and were introduced to the blues. In, in Jeff's case... He, you know, he grew up on, on Jelly Will Martin and, and Louis Armstrong because he just loved that whole jazz thing, which then morphed into the whole thing with, you know, the B.B. Kings of the world and, and going back to Robert Johnson and, you know, the real base of the blues. At the time in Canada, there was the Powder Blues Band and Down Child's Blues Band. Powder Blues were actually a couple of transplanted uh, Americans from Chicago from your neck of the woods. You know, they were out of Vancouver, and so that scene's there. Now you have Stevie Ray kind of breaking. But you're right. In Canada itself, there's no big demand for a blues guitar player. Having said that, Jeff rocked out as well. It wasn't just straight-up blues. And that, therein lies kind of the rub where I'm looking at this guy, and it, in my mind, you know, I'm not, I know nothing about the music business, but I know a great talent when I see it. And Jeff, to me especially at 1718, was better than anyone I'd ever seen on a TV set or a video or had seen live, and I can't understand how he hasn't got a deal. And the answer to that is, and he told me, he said, look, I don't even know if I'm going to continue this kind of thing because, you know, I might go into radio or engineering or that kind of thing because I'm being told that, you know, no one will sign me. And I, I, I just couldn't figure that, I, I, my mind couldn't wrap, itself around the fact that no one in Canada in a record company could not understand this guy or, or know what to do with him. And some of the things that were coming back were they it, it was too gimmicky, they didn't want to be around a circus act. I mean, it's just some crazy things, which really kind of ticked me off. So, you know, we put our head down. We couldn't get an agent. We couldn't get a manager. And we just said, okay, we'll start our own record company. We put out our own record. And we got very lucky because uh, uh, the Lavin brothers in the Powder Blues Band were, were great enough to fly us out to Vancouver, and, and we recorded our first two singles, Adriana and See the Light. We came back to Toronto, and a guy called Alan Resnick uh, was a student at Ryerson. And for 500 bucks, uh, he made to this day, which is my favorite video, uh, which was See the Light. We put that together as a package, and all of a sudden we're getting radio play. And uh, much music's just breaking out in those days, so all of a sudden we're getting played in much music. Now, the only downside, one of the reviewers at the time said, you know, you might think all three guys in the band are blind when you look at them, because we looked, we were a mess. I mean, I looked like a terrorist with a headband, and Joe, I think, had stripes and sideways stripes, and Jeff's pants were up to his kneecaps. But the essence of what we were doing, particularly Jeff, was, you know, hard to miss, and there was a lot of energy. And that became our calling card. First off, the Canadian music industry would go and call you guys gimmicky or something else because you obviously weren't playing on the idea or trying to completely capitalize on 
Jeff's condition, like, if you didn't even know that was the case when you first played, that that definitely wasn't your idea. So for them to not realize that this is a quite marketable, talented musician at first is pretty ridiculous in my mindset. And I got to say that I recently did watch the See the Light music video for being your first music video and for only $500. It goes with the song very well. It's very emotional of a video, and it just flows with it very nicely. Right, I appreciate that. And, and you know, eventually, unfortunately, like the, sometimes the story in Canada is, I was able to get that to New York and get that in front of some of the right people. You know, after three or four years of slugging it out back and forth, across Canada, um, you know, we finally got our, our deal in the States. Having said that, your neck of the woods, uh, British Columbia, was a very important part of our story because two things happened out there. Uh, firstly, we make our first single uh, with the Powder Blues Band at their studio. And secondly, um, we go out there for Expo 86. Now, we couldn't get in Expo, but I managed to find a gig in a hotel that was supposedly around Expo. Now, you know, we fly out there, and we're, we're pretty broken those days, and all of a sudden we arrive at a hotel, and uh, the bar's under construction, and it's like, well, who are you guys? Well, we're a Jeff Ely band. We're here to play, and it's like, well, we're going into Country Western, and the bar's under construction. Sorry. And no, no one had bothered to tell us this. And needless to say, uh, they put us up in a boardroom with three cots, and, you know, it was not a pleasant time. And uh, eventually I found the agent, and words were, were had, obviously. And to his credit, though, he said, look, just hang in there. And he phoned me the next day at the hotel, and he said, you'll be happy to know this American band got in a big car accident on the way up the expo, and there's now an open slot for you guys. I mean, the guy was gleeful. These poor guys had been in a car accident, which was kind of my first uh, experience with agents. Uh, that aside, it ended up being the lunch, lunchtime slot at expo. Now... It was not, I mean, the good news is we, we had enough money till we had our own hotel rooms, but it was a lunchtime crowd, as Jeff would call them, ankle biters and grayheads. And, of course, it was turned down the music constantly. And, of course, Jeff, being a bit of a contrarian, would just turn it up to 12 and, and bang it out. The good thing that comes along is B.B. King comes to play the main stage. Now, our passes were only day passes, but, you know, we had enough money together got ourselves a limousine, put Jeff and myself in the back, and off we went to the door for the back of the main stage where Mr. King's playing. And uh, we're lucky enough to kind of talk our way in. You know, hung around backstage. The cool thing with Jeff was all he had to do was open his case, so then he could just start playing. He didn't have to pull the guitar out or that kind of thing. Eventually, uh, Mr. King, uh, people invited us into Mr. King's dressing room, and he was just blown away. And, you know, he just said, Jeff, I've, I've just truly never seen anything like this. Come on up and play. And that's really what that kind of recognition at Expo really, really jumped our game 100%. And from that, all of a sudden, our first real recognition is in British Columbia, where we start doing like Harples in Victoria, um, uh, Town Pump in, in the Yale in uh, Vancouver, uh, we played Kamloops, we played all through there, and that became, in that month, we did our first real tour. 
of the of that province. So it's interesting because it was BC and Nova Scotia, so opposite ends of the country, that discovered us first before we really started getting notoriety, like even in Toronto, which was our home base. It kind of is a way that a lot of people find the music scene in Canada is sometimes you'll you'll be in the middle of the country and you'll find something off in the west coast or you'll be in the east coast and oh hey things are popping over in the west coast and they'll have an alberta band that gets really big over in toronto and it's just really weird how things can start out but to have someone like bb king one of blues biggest legends and guitar players alone for him to be able to recognize it when the rest of the music industry isn't exactly catching on yet definitely has to give you guys a little bit of confidence and a little bit of idea that you are doing the right thing no question i mean it was a game changer for our career mr king became a good friend of the band and was a big fan of jeff's and you know he was a real gentleman uh one of the nicest guys you can meet you know, consequently, when we did have a success, uh, we were embarrassed a couple of times where he was actually opening for us, which which we'd get in huge arguments with European agencies saying there's no way that, you know, we're opening for Mr. King. That's just the way it is. So if you don't like that, then we're not going on because, you know, this is B.B. King, for God's sake, right? But he was just such a gentleman, and he taught us a lot just in because a lot of our music business is, you know, some, sometimes how you carry yourself. And... uh he was just a consummate gentleman. Unfortunately, he had an excellent memory. In the book, there's a story where I meet Mr. King back when I was, I don't know, in my early 20s. Uh, my cousin had brought him in to, to play in Halifax. And his flight had been delayed due to a snowstorm, which kind of really screwed up the rest of the dates. And we had a limousine to pick him up in, which broke down. So I ended up driving him around in a 77 Trans Am. And he was such a gentleman, and in fact, when the limo was working again, he asked for me to come and pick him up and drive him to see a guy called Bucky Adams, who he'd heard about a saxist from uh, Nova Scotia. So he remembers this, and he says, by the way, I remember you, and you know your cousin was the first guy that ever sued me in my career, and I thought, oh man, we finally get Jeff in front of this guy, and the whole thing's going to be blown away because of my crazy cousin from the East Coast. But he laughed about it and then promptly invited Jeff on stage. And But the reason I tell that, it's just so interesting how things work out. Time is a uh, funny, funny thing. Yeah. I mean, what are the odds of, you know, driving the guy around and six, seven years later, here he is, you know, launching a career. Keeping in mind, I, I, I had no ambition to be in a band that was never where I thought I was going, and all of a sudden here you are meeting, in my opinion, one of the finest gentlemen in the business. Yes, definitely one of the stalwart legends, and I wish I had the opportunity to see B.B. King, but sadly I never got the opportunity. It's like anything in life. You can watch it on film and whatnot, but you know, even last night, just being in the room and seeing those great musicians, it's such a great experience, and I got to see Mr. King, you know, a bunch of times uh, around the world, and he never disappointed. Just consistent as could be, him and his band. It was a real honor to to watch that. And 
in Jeff's case, he just loved B.B. King because in many ways, B.B. Uh, King and Dr. John were the guys who played with Louis Armstrong, and, and that's where Jeff's true love was, big band jazz. So these were really conduits to, to you know, here's a step away from the actual music that he just worshipped. So it was huge in Jeff's mind to meet Mr. King and, and, and later Dr. John. can imagine for him just the level of excitement and how humbling a moment like that would be to meet someone who has been such a big part of the scene even up to that point and he still had a long ways to go oh absolutely you've said that you were an urban planner but somehow you end up in this band and you end up co-managing the band how is the decision to come about to co-manage the band because with someone of Jeff's condition, once people actually start to catch on to the group, once you get music videos out, once you get albums out, and especially once you start breaking into Hollywood and things, I assume that people want to take this talent and run it all over the place for their own ambitions, because like you said earlier, there was an agent who got excited because another band got into an accident, and it's not to say like, oh great, now this opportunity is here, but it's like, you're getting excited at the expense of somebody else. So those are the type of people that are going to use someone like that. So how do you guys end up like co-managing the band? And how it, are your experiences with that as someone who never had experience and is trained as an urban planner? It was a double-edged sword, but firstly, it was a mother of necessity because no one wanted to be our agent and nobody wanted to be our manager. So, I mean, you're kind of like, well, okay, boys, let's uh, form our own label, you know, produce our own music, and uh, I guess now we're our own agent. And So I spent hours on the phone. We all sort of had our own little niche. Obviously, Jeff was a star. Um, Joe was great at, you know, getting and helping with the bookings. And I was sort of the hustler of trying to get the record deal and, and you know, press. There's a great story I, I didn't even know about that Steve Herman remembered. Uh, Steve Herman was one of our original agents. Just to be clear, there's a lot of great agents out there. They're, oh, yes, they're not all They're not all into car accidents. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, Steve tells a story in the book where Copa was in those days... Um, the the university network so they would have two times a year they'd have their big convention and you could only be there if you were an agent or a manager so we basically called ourselves an agency rented a booth put jeff in the middle of the the whole thing plugged in his guitar and he blasted till they came and you know unplugged the guitar but as steve points out in the book he said you know the damage had already been done in a positive way in that it didn't matter that they unplugged the guitar. Then 30 people lined up and booked us for the, you know, the rest of the year in every major university in Canada, which was huge back in the 80s because that's when you're really getting exposure. And believe it or not, you know, blues rock was, was a big deal back in those days. It was catching on. Certainly, you know, it's not like hip-hop today, but it, back then it was a different world. So now we, we we jump ahead, and you're right. All of a sudden, we're in Hollywood. We have a record deal. We're making a movie, and all these big managers are definitely interested. You know, we've now picked up great agents: uh, Steve Herman on the Canadian side, uh, Rob Light at CAA, um, Ralph James here in Canada. But we were very lucky with our agents. They were just great people and really looked after us. 
the management side, it was kind of like, Jeff was sort of like, look, we've done the work. We seem to know what we're doing. You know, we got it this far. You know, what do we need a, a manager for? And that's why part of the reason I wrote the book, uh, you know, not to be too defensive, but I took a, a bit of a beating over the years. And my sense of the whole thing was, you know what? I want to tell this story as a founding mentor with Jeff, you know, as best as I can. And the management was really a point of contention with a lot of critics. But the reality is we had no choice. And... You know, one guy recently wrote, you know, you know, Stephen kind of throws this Canadian icon under the bus. And that's, well, I'm fine. And I accept, uh, as I used to tell clients, you know what, you know, accept the, the reviews and move on. But in my book, when I heard that, I kind of was like, well, you know, nevertheless, it was a bus that drove us to a couple of Grammy nominations, millions of record sales, uh, you know, a bunch of nom- uh, Juno nominations and won a couple along with the fact of uh, Jeff discovering Amanda Marshall who went on to do great things. So we had a great run. Now the debate for those nowadays who care to care about such things is could we have done better with a big manager? The answer is I truly don't know. I know that we took it a long way. My suspicion is I think Jeff liked that kind of setup because if Bruce Allen's telling you what to do, you're doing it. If Tom Steven, who's also your drummer, is telling you what to do, it's optional. (laughs) He might do it, he might not. So I think there is a certain sense of uh, Jeff keeping control in a way. And also, you know, Jeff wasn't into this game of I want to be a big celebrity. And I'm ashamed to say that was probably myself and Joe who were probably more into breaking and making it. Jeff just wanted to play and enjoy the music. Don't get me wrong. He clearly wanted to have a career. But as years progressed, it became more and more apparent that that wasn't his motivation per se. It was more about quality of the music and the great folks he got to play with. I don't actually know what the severity of Jeff's vision was. So for him to be in a movie, can he even like watch himself inside the film? No, those are, are, are prosthetic eyes. So prosthetic, pardon me, eyes. So um, you know, he had zero vision. But you know, this is going to sound strange, but I never thought of Jeff as being visually handicapped. And by the way, if if you told Jeff he was visually handicapped, or more importantly, if you told him he was great because he was blind, trust me, you didn't want to be too close to the king because he just didn't buy into that argument at all. The beauty of Jeff, I mean, firstly, he was one of the bravest guys I ever knew. I mean, he, you know, his joke was, well, when I was at blind school, you know, I was very careful. All my friends used to jump off a 15-foot wall, so I'd only jump off a 10-foot wall. And there's truth in that. I mean, these guys were just crazy out of their mind, and that's, you know, how Jeff worked. But by the same token, he'd be the first to say, come on up to the blind school and half these guys couldn't carry a note, let alone play a guitar. So he just wasn't buying into this. You're blind and therefore you're a better guitar player or you've, mm-hmm. your senses are so much better or any of that thing. He just thought that was total nonsense. He was just and, uh, yeah. He, he, and, and I do believe he had a God given or a universal given or whatever given talent. There's no question. The guy was, you know, just a remarkable ear and a remarkable guitar player. And for that matter, a, decent trumpet player, piano player, bass player, drum player. I mean, he just he had a natural affinity for music. And more importantly, 
he knew a track. You play him two notes, and he had the thing down in in the first ten seconds. Mm-hmm. And I saw him play with guys who had just written a song, and he already knew where the song was going. I mean, it was it was an incredible ability the man possessed. Because they say he started at the age of three, so by the time you meet him at seventeen, he had fourteen years of figuring out the spacing and the fingering and everything for the guitar but that's it is that may be part of the reason why he didn't want fame but it also speaks to the reason that he was definitely doing it because this is what he loved in his heart it is but a couple things happened since the book has come out um a couple folks who weren't really you know fans of mine and were very close with jeff over the years uh, i had a really great opportunity to to talk to a couple of them they reached out to me and, and you know i was really taken aback and candidly wasn't really trusting of wanting to really talk because uh, you know there had been some things said over the years and eagles bruised and whatnot but in uh, one of the guys i i've talked to fairly regularly now because i learned a lot of things i didn't know about jeff and i i kind of kicked myself because you know, Jeff was getting tired of the whole thing, and, you know, he felt a responsibility that he really didn't want anymore, and he just wanted to move on and play jazz and get out of that, you know, music rat race of labels and radio and so on and so forth. And to my discredit, I miss that. And, you know, that's shame on me, because that's something, you know, I would have hoped I'd picked up on. That being said, though, you're, all of us were so caught up in it, and then there's the boozy nickels with it and the partying and the late nights and travel. And by the way, I'm not complaining because I, I, I you know, because of Jeff, I got to have a, you know, an exceptionally wonderful life. But I didn't realize that Jeff wasn't necessarily having a great time himself. And I recently came across a couple of interviews where he kind of says, you know, the funny thing is, here is the Jeff Healy band, and, you know, eh, I could kind of take it or leave it, but my partners, you know, Tom and Joe, were they wanted to be rock stars. And I guess there's a certain amount of truth in that. I mean, Jeff really wasn't that knocked out if he played with the biggest and the best. Um, he was more about, you know, enjoying the actual playing. He didn't care if you were a Rolling Stone or a Beatle or, or, you know, some dude we met in a jam session in Norway. If it was smoking and working, then he was there. But he, he wasn't caught up in this, you know, I'm a star or I'm hanging out with stars. or That was never Jeff. I see. So part of writing your own book, because Jeff's been gone for over a decade now. Yeah, it's his birthday today, actually. Oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah. 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 So I think it's 11 years. Yeah. 11 years. Because yeah. the 25th was... When he passed, correct? Correct, yep. So a quick fix here on that information. Of course, we are talking about March 25th. That is the day that the late, great Jeff Healy happened to pass away. Rest in peace, Jeff. I actually sat down to do this conversation with Tom Stevens in March of 2019. So that's the explanation for that one there. That way, nobody tries to call me out for misinformation. So there it is, March 25th, the day of passing 11 years ago for the late, great Jeff Healy. 
And with that being said, it's about time that Jeff Healy was added into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And who brought this idea to Tom Stevens? Who actually sparked the idea in Tom Stevens' mind that it is time to write this book and it is time to put some of these hilarious antics, some of the things that happened to this Canadian blues rock trio that may never happen to another group like them ever again. I mean, to be in a movie like Roadhouse, to be a Canadian blues rock band nominated for multiple Grammys, for all the things that this group achieved, I think that Jeff Healy at least at least deserves the respect of being inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, and that's something that we are going to be discussing right away with my guest, Tom Stevens. Of course, before we go ahead and do that, I want to go and take a moment here to ask the Desert Tiger Podcast listeners if they've gone and checked out ilovedtp.com recently. ilovedtp.com is the best place to show your support for the DTP besides following the podcast on your favorite service, besides sharing the episodes, ilovedtp.com is the place where you can pick yourself up some Desert Tiger Podcast merch that's right and that helps this show that's right it helps us with getting more interviews with upgrading our equipment with increasing the types of merch that we have and that's one thing that i want to mention right now we are going to be adding hats to the dtp store very very soon that's right we are getting some flat brimmed snapback black hats with that traditional dtp logo right front and center they are beautiful they are coming to the web store very soon and of course next to that last week on our mid-roll i happened to mention that we were looking into some female style clothing one of the listeners of the podcast messaged me and said hey dickhead you didn't actually say whether or not you were getting female orientated clothing or not you just hinted towards it is it a yes is it a no what is it Colton? And the answer is yes, we are getting some female orientated clothing too. We are getting some tank tops. Very soon I went in and talked to a shop about getting some unisex tank tops and they said, you know what, however many of those you need done in a female style, we can do that too. It doesn't matter. So that's right, we're going to get start getting some female fitted shirts as well. Tanks for everybody dtp style hats for everybody things are going to be kicking off we're going to be getting pins soon we're going to be getting buttons soon some more stickers with that new logo that was made by the man kaylor coons i haven't actually given that a name yet what are we going to give that we're going to give that the uh we're going to call that the desert treader design that's right the desert treader design is going to be on the tank top if you haven't seen that yet it is the banner over on our facebook page of course the picture is also available for viewing purposes over on our twitter over on our instagram and soon you will be able to see the design itself on our web store on the beautiful tank top 
itself. All right, I love DTP.com, that being www.ilovedtp.com, the best place to show your support for the Desert Tiger Podcast. <laughs> writing your own book it's in 10 years a lot of stories can be changed or exaggerated or otherwise so in part of writing your own book like you said since writing it you've learned a lot of things about Jeff that you didn't know but you also got to express your experiences and your time without having someone else's filter and without having someone else's exaggerations involved. Is that part of the reason why you wrote the book? That's a very good observation in it for at several levels. You know, there, there seem to be a couple caps. One is, you know, Tom was a jackass and took advantage of Jeff Healy. And I kind of put up with that for a bunch, a long time, and uh, that was okay. You know, everyone has opinions. And it's not unusual in rock and roll. I mean, we wouldn't be the first band with disagreements or, you know, other folks having their their opinions. But what started bugging me was exactly what you said. The history of the band was starting to be reinvented. And more importantly, some of the music choices that were being put out by, by, you know, various people just weren't true. They weren't honest to Jeff, nor were they honest to the band. And a lot of what I was hearing just, you know, wasn't correct. At the beginning of the book, I'm very clear. In fact, you know, the, the co-author is, is a guy called uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg, and Keith's written a couple of bestsellers, and he's also a producer of, of documentaries with NBC Television and a researcher. So this guy is thorough. And my agreement with Keith was, look, a lot of this has been lost in time. Uh, straight up, you know, there was a lot of boozing and partying and, and, you know, the haze of travel and the haze of parties and the haze of this. And I don't know how accurate I'm going to get this, but what I'll accept is what you find goes in the book. long as I know it to be as true as we can be sure of, then it goes in. And if they say Tom Stevens a jackass, well, fine. I mean, I, I think if you read the book, I, I take a pretty good beating from some, from some folks. But it's honest. And, and the same goes for Jeff and, and uh, to a certain degree for Joe. That's what the book was about, in my mind, was there, there were two levels and two reasons. One is I didn't like, as I say, the, the interpretation of the band and some of the musical representation. But the most important thing, and, and this is, you know, here's this Canadian icon who beat all the odds along with the band, and all of a sudden he's getting lost to time. And that scared me and worried me because this guy is one of the greatest guitar players to ever come out of Canada. Forgetting, you know, what people would call a disability or whatever, I mean, pound for bound, he was just a great guitar player. Clearly, though, you can't take away the fact that the guy was a blind guy and beat a lot of odds. And together as a band, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to succeed in many cases in spite of maybe the industry's opinion. In, in saying that, I'm not knocking the industry because, you know, industry's tough even in those days. 
it, it's a hard grind for the folks who are in there trying to make decisions and sign bans and, you know, jobs are on the line, money's on the line. I, I understand all that. By the same token, if Jeff is so loved, as Tom Cochran said to me, I ran into him several months back at a private gig, he started talking about Jeff while he was doing his show. He had no idea I was in the audience. And what, he kind of ended the whole thing with, why isn't Jeff Healy in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And that was the clincher for me where I decided that, you know, I'm putting this book out. Because he, he nailed it. Like, a guy of this amount of talent getting lost to history would be a travesty. So that's pretty much why I jumped in. Okay, and that's one thing that I wanted to speak about as well is because he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but he's also not in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Does he even have a star on the Canadian Walk of Fame? He has the star, absolutely, and to to, to the estate's credit, um, they did accomplish that, I think, several years back with a lot of, with, with the support of some of Jeff's uh, close friends and a couple guys that used to be in uh, Blue Direction, which was Jeff's original band uh, out of Toronto. And, you know, a shout-out to those guys. They were great. But at the same time, I started realizing, particularly when I was traveling around the world, that those conversations I used to have talking about great guitar players, all of a sudden Jeff was less and less mentioned. And or it would come down to well you know the guy in uh, in Roadhouse the movie, which is fine. I mean thank God we made a movie called Roadhouse and it still to this day gets a lot of play and it it keeps Jeff and the band in the forefront. But having said that, uh, I'm a stubborn guy and I think Jeff means a lot more to musical history and I think uh, the catalog should be doing a lot better and people should be being introduced to Jeff and his story. And more importantly, the music, and and more importantly, the styles. And there's no one like Jeff before, and there's been no one like that since. And that's the mission here: is to get that out there. Now, I know there's certain folks out there who don't think that it's a money maker or or this or that, and that's well and fine. But it isn't always about money. It's also about history, and it's also about recognition, and remembering how great a talent this guy was. Now look, I you know I'm not on the side of the angels here. I I have my ego involved here to a certain extent, and the reality is me and Jeff didn't necessarily end on a great note. Um, you know, it, rock and roll is rock and roll, but we had you know 16 years together where we were a band of brothers, and that's important to me that people remember that. Oh, I agree, and it is is even if it isn't much of a money maker in terms of the book getting a New York bestseller or something else, but it is doing exactly what literature is supposed to do and why it was existed, was to preserve history as what it is. And one of the things that you do with the book is you definitely don't hold back. You're not trying to glorify anybody by any means. It's an honest review where... You're not trying to do things, and I'm not trying to tear other things apart, but... Because, like, recently, there was the uh, Queen movie that came out. And yeah, I see. Yep. Exceptional quality of filming and everything else, but they completely rewrote some of the history of the band just in order to support the film's storytelling arc, which that 
I have problems with that, and for you to be honest is very exceptional because you didn't have to be. No disrespect, but I, I did have to be because, firstly, that's my nature. It's the way I was brought up. You know, look, I admit I was a jackass back in the day. I, I was a cocky, arrogant, aggressive, go-for-it kind of guy. But a lot of that arrogance was, you know what, I'm with Jeff Healy, and he's goddamn well the greatest guitar player I've ever seen in the world, and goddamn it, the world's going to give him his due. And I, I had a bit, of chip, uh, a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I just couldn't understand, you know, how how in Canada they miss this guy. And I didn't do myself a lot of favors. A guy once told me, be nice to everybody, Tom, because going up might be slow, but coming down is real fast, you know, and a lot of guys will hand you an anvil on the way down. And I learned that the hard way. Now, do I regret that? Sure, there's some things I could have done better. But what we all did as a unit is, we got the message and got Jeff out there, and worldwide. In in a blues band, which in those days, if you sold 100,000 records, everyone would, yay, let's put out another, another record and maybe we'll sell 50,000. We sold millions. Mm. And, you know, a lot of that was because of the movie, but a lot of that, too, was the work ethic of Jeff. I mean, we were touring, you know, not unlike Mr. King, though I don't think anyone touches Mr. King, but we were out there 300 days a year, you know, banging away, getting it out there. Now, for a couple of reasons, A, we love doing it, but B, it was, you know, this is Jeff and this is the band. The only way to tell that story is honestly. Now, you know, a couple of people think I was a little hard on Jeff and uh, other people think I was too hard on myself, so you're never going to win. But the reality is, my answer to that is read the book, be the judge. If you think you get it, great. If you don't, fine. You know, send a letter to the editor or whatever. And, and But I'm the guy that was there, and I really trust Keith in his, you know, impeccable research. And I think I did Jeff and the band as much justice as I could. Uh, as I say, I, I missed a few things, which I'm now finding out, and I hope to correct those in the upcoming uh, documentary if, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get it made. But all those things being equal... It had to be an honest story because it's not just about music. It's also about the business. And it's also about beating odds. And it's also about a guy like Jeff who, you know, does have a handicap. Being, in my opinion, one of the bravest human beings I ever knew. And, you know, toughing it out to get ahead. And I think that's inspirational unto itself. And, I, you know, whether you're into hip-hop. In fact, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of, um, of uh, rap dudes and hip-hop guys and, uh, you know, their story is very similar to what we did. I mean, that's how they started, selling their, their records out of the back of their trunk of their car. I mean, that's literally what we were doing when we started. So it's about that hustle and, and the belief in yourself and, you know, being willing to hear a million no's till you finally hear a yes. Now, the funny thing about when you finally hear a yes, then all of a sudden, all you hear is yes. No one ever tells you no which is how you end up with drug problems or alcohol problems or whatever else because you go from no one gives a damn to now you're a moneymaker for, you know, a bunch of people at a bunch of different levels and, you know, you can have whatever you want. Now, we're just a small little band relative to imagine like the Stones and Led Zeppelin and guys like that. I don't even know how some of those guys are still alive. You know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's almost like their bodies were built for the industry because there's a lot of people who definitely have not been able to 
hold on or survive the lifestyle? Well, uh, you know, I don't want to do a woes me because getting to play drums in a band and travel the world is a heck of a fine way to go, mm -hmm. as it was for Jeff and Joe. But I will say this, and, and this isn't woes me in, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a grueling kind of thing, and it does wear you down, and there tends to be a lot of excess, and you start believing a bit of your own press as well. You know, the thing that kept my feet on the ground were all my old buddies from the Maritimes. You know, if I ever got too cocky, uh, you know, they would just leave me sitting in the in the pub with, you know, a $1,000 bar bill. <laughs> you know, you're a big shot, pay the bill. And, and that has a way of keeping your feet on the ground. Mm -hmm. I think the guys that you see lose it are guys who either, A, don't have their, their, their sense of who they are going into it, or, B, it just goes to their head and uh, they lose control. Now, that's not to say, you know, hell, we, we, we sure as hell made our sure mistakes along the way. And, you know, I stepped on a lot of toes along the way. And, and you got to recognize that when you're looking back at this kind of thing. But by the same token, musicians are out there giving a lot to people. I mean, it doesn't matter what crowd you're in front of, whether you're in Japan or, or what comes to mind is back in the day when we played uh, Dublin. I mean, that was still a divided city. The war's still going on. And you have Catholics and Protestants in the same audience. And literally, we'd, we'd slow down, and all of a sudden, you'd hear a smack, crack. I mean, there'd be fist fights going on. Then the music would start, and everyone was cool. And, I mean, that's what music is, is bringing people together. But the price paid for that is all those lonely hours of travel and, and getting to where you got to be and being away from maybe loved ones. Now, me personally, I love being on the road. I mean, hell, I go back out there tomorrow. Um but I found out from Jeff's friends recently that, you know, the road wasn't a big deal to, to, to him in the end and it wasn't something that was, you know, something he necessarily looked forward to. On his terms, absolutely. Uh, I think that was one of the mistakes I made. Knowing what I know now, I think we probably should have cut back on some of that touring and, you know, left a lot more space for individual people to do in, within the band to go off and do their own thing and then come back when, when we were ready to go back out there. Again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, and also, when you're on the road 80% of the year, and once everybody's saying yes to you, it's hard to turn around and say no to everybody else and say, no, we don't want to do this tour over here because this region, you want to try and reach all your fans, you want to try and go as far as you can, and sometimes when you're spending hours upon hours inside of a tour bus, on planes, traveling... Sometimes things can come forward and personalities can clash. Absolutely. It's a double-edged sword again because you, like we loved our audience. I mean, Jeff was a guy who would sit there, you know, from daylight to nightfall and sign autographs. We all were. And cared about his fans as we all did. And, you know, if you're going to cross the world, well, then you got to show up and do your gig because people are, paying you know I, I know you hear this constantly but people work hard and they spend their hard-earned money to buy a ticket to come and see you and it's your job to do what we can to give the best show and this is one of the remarkable things about Jeff Feely 
I mean, you know, on one hand, I tend it to be a bit more of the management side, and on the other hand, I tend it to be a bit more of the troublemaker. So, you know, that's the the problem when you manage yourselves is, you know, you become a bit of a hypocrite. So one day I'm the drunk guy in the band, and the next day I'm, you know, giving the boys hell because we got to be someplace or we got to do this or we got to do that. So that's the downside of self-management. But the upside is... Yeah, you get tired and you get lonely and you get this and you get that. But you know what? There's a lot of people driving trucks that have the same issues and don't get the same rewards. So, you know, I give thanks for the abilities and times that we were lucky enough to be out there. I tend to look back at it as a remarkable experience. Are there things I'd like to change? Sure. But one thing I'd never change is those years with Jeff Healy and, you know, my book, I... I still got to pinch myself that I got to work with probably, you know, pound for pound, one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived. And I'll stand by that. And whether you believe me or not in the book, there's other guys saying it like Slash and George Harrison and Paul Schaefer. I mean, Jeff was a highly, highly respected musician. Now, and there was also the rub because myself and Joe, candidly, in the eyes of many, weren't, weren't of the caliber of Jeff. And so, you know, it's funny. For years, we were fine, and then all of a sudden, you get some records out, and now you're taking a hit while the rhythm section's not good enough, or, you know, the, uh, Jeff shouldn't really be singing. He should only play guitar. Or, you know, all of a sudden, everybody has an opinion. But you know what? It's At least people have an opinion. <laughs> so that's the way I looked at it. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> to say that Jeff Healy shouldn't be singing when he has such a powerful, emotionally-driven voice is... Are they listening with their actual ears? I, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on your show, but uh, no, I think they're listening with their butts because, uh, you know, J- Jeff, to me, had one of the great voices of, 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 of that genre. Mm-hmm. And and more importantly, could could sing and play like nobody. I mean, pound for pound, I, I think Schaefer in the book really summed it up. He said, if Jeff Hooley were still with us today, you know, one way or the other, he would still be at the forefront. Even if, you know, he was playing on a hip-hop record. You know, Jeff just had that ability. Again, that's part of this mission and the writing of the book. And as as you aptly pointed out, I don't care if I get a bestseller. What I have managed to do, though, is spark a conversation, mm-hmm. as you pointed out earlier. And that really was what this was about, is let's get, you know, let's talk about this. Where Where is this guy? Why isn't there more notoriety? I'm an ambitious guy, and sure, if people want to say, well, you know, Tom's reliving his past, I am. I'm not going to deny it. I'm, I was lucky enough to have that past. But more importantly, the guy who really counts here is, you know, not losing Jeff to the time, particularly in Canada. I mean, you know, Canada is a heavyweight country. Uh, we're fighting way out of our weight class in terms of musicianship worldwide. We're roughly at any time in the last couple of decades, we're like 22, 23% of, of the total world market. Uh, a country of 34 million people living next door to a country of three, what is it, 334 million people. And now you throw Europe in and you look at it that way, Canadians beat the odds by far in all genres of music every day. And, you know, we should be really proud of that. And in there, representing the blues category uh, and guitar playing side of it, is Jeff Feely, and probably in my mind, you know, probably deserves more recognition than than almost anyone else in the country. That's not taken away from the Colin James of the world or the, you know, Donnie Walsh and Downtown's blues band. It's just saying that the kind of artist and the time and place where Jeff was, 
in playing with Stevie Ray and, and Clapton and all these greats, he every bit deserved to be there, more importantly, and was recognized by those greats that he should be there. Absolutely. And to say, like, Colin James, and it's no disrespect to any of them, but they still have a lot of opportunity to continue to write their story. And yes. we can't allow a Grammy-nominated, a Juno Award-winning artist, someone who has represented Canada on the grand stage worldwide to just slip under the ever-evolving history of Canadian music. He needs to be represented, and that's something that you're also hoping to do with the documentary that you're working on. I hope so. Now, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, don't want the documentary to be made, and uh, it, it yet again will be another battle. But I laugh because the thing that probably cracks me up the most, and by the way, I don't want to be all negative here. I mean, we'll get into some humor in, in a little second here, but if anyone thinks that anybody could tell Jeff Feely what to do if he didn't want to do it, I have news for you. It wasn't going to happen. I'm sure when I woke up one morning and the tour bus is shaking all over the highway and I find that Jeff Healy's driving the bus, you know, down Interstate 95, I'm pretty sure the bus driver and the road manager told him that wasn't a good idea. But that never stopped Jeff Healy, right? And that's a metaphor of Jeff's life. He didn't tell Jeff what to do. Uh, Jeff did what he wanted to do. And, and now, having said that, he wasn't a guy that necessarily liked confrontation, and I learned recently that, you know, there were times when he wasn't that happy being in the band or doing things that he didn't really want to do, and, and that was a bit of a revelation. But he was a commander of his own destiny, and, uh, you know, I want to be clear in that. You know, that's the serious side. On the humor side, a guy cheated the cards, you know, for what that's worth. Um <laughs> You know, all of a sudden I owe him a couple thousand bucks. I'm like, how's this dude beat me all the time? And eventually he, he kind of, you know, he had that little glimmer and, and a little impish smile, and he'd kind of curl his hair and bite his lip as he's smoking his cigarette, and he'd go, uh, you know, he'd look at the deck, and there were Braille cards, and he was literally bending some of the Braille cards. Now, he got away with that till we get on uh, the Much Music train, which is, I think, back in the mid-'90s, and we went across the country with... Just stellar Canadian artists jamming on the train and stopping in each city and doing concerts. It was one of the great highlights of, of the band's career. But uh, Mike Campbell of, of uh, Mike and Mike's Great Adventures told me a story recently where, and, and again, not in the book. I mean, heck, I should write another book. There's a lot of stories that are way better than the ones that went in the book. But when they realized Jeff was cheating at cards, what they did is they set up a, like a GoPro camera behind his cards, and they had a little monitor, so they were reading his cards, and all of a sudden now they're beating them. And when Jeff figured that out, he just laughed his butt off. I mean, he was a humorous, humorous guy. From playing with Braille cards that most people wouldn't even notice... I mean, bowling was easy top. Driving yep. on a highway with, like, eyes that don't even necessarily work. I assume that somebody was telling him, like, a little to the left oh, yeah. a little to the right, right? Yeah, I, I thank God or I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you. So, yeah, someone was keeping him between the lines for sure. Oh, my goodness. What a character. Well, he was fearless. I mean... We were go-kart racing in Australia, 
and uh, he was sort of tied beside another guy, uh, one, of the, one of the roadies, I think it was Chris. And uh, But, you know, eventually he was getting around that track on his own. I mean, he, he Jeff was a guy that went for it. And, you know, you can't take that away from him. Like he started his own club. I mean, he did a lot of things that he wanted to do. And one of the great things I did learn recently from a couple of his close friends who, you know, have spoke to me was that, you know, he was happy in the end of his life, and that was important to know. He was doing what he wanted to do. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yes. I'm very glad to hear that. Well, we've gone a little bit over what we discussed, so I want to thank you so, so very much for sharing your experiences with me today, Tom. Well, i, I got to tell you, thank you so much, and... uh you know, I, I'm glad you jump on board and let's let's get this mission moving and let's get Jeff in the in the Hall of Hall of Fame. I agree with a character with a personality like that. How can we not continue to represent what he meant to Canadian music? Fantastic, man! Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. All right, thank you. And before I let you go, where can the listeners find the book? Geez, I'm glad you asked that question because I got hell the other day. I forgot to uh, tell folks that. Um, uh, you, you can get it on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, I think it's Indigo on Indigo site and in most of the Indigo's uh, stores. In the States, it's just coming out. It'll be in uh, Barnes & Noble or on the Barnes & Noble site. And in Europe, it's not out till spring, but I believe it's available on uh, Amazon.com. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Tom. Again, all the best. Cheers. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of another episode here of the Desert Tiger Podcast. I want to go ahead and take a moment to give a one last thank you to today's guest on the show. That, of course, being Mr. Tom Stevens, recent author of the new book, Best Seat in the House. I also want to go ahead and thank you guys, the listeners here at the Desert Tiger Podcast, for tuning in once again to this episode. Of course, some of you might notice a slight difference in this episode from some of the previous ones. Don't worry, we're going to be going back to the old style of playing tunes. There's a very specific reason why things had to happen this way today. Don't worry about it. Everything is fine. If you guys enjoyed this episode, I would be extremely ecstatic if you went ahead and shared it on your social media with your friends and your family. If you haven't subscribed to the Desert Tiger podcast yet, what are you doing? Go ahead, hit subscribe or follow on whatever service you are using. And of course, if you want to go ahead and take one step further in supporting the DTP, you can go ahead and visit ilovedtp.com. Of course, that is ilovedtp.com, I-L-O-V-E-D-T-P.com for all your Desert Tiger podcast 
merch needs so that you can support the show everywhere you go. Of course, you guys know that I will be back next Thursday. As to who the guest is going to be, that one is a little bit up in the air, but I assure you, no matter who it ends up being, it's going to be being a great interview. Uh, As you guys just heard, that's Tucker. He definitely wants my attention right now, so I gotta let you guys go. Have yourselves a great weekend.